about becoming a horse girl, I recommend it. Horses are a fantastic pet if you ever wished your bicycle could make shitty decisions. <laughs> Hey, hi, hello, y'all. This is RB, and welcome back. That self-proclaimed horse girl you just heard from is comedian and intersectional accessibility educator Hayden Crystal. And on today's episode, I had the opportunity for a couch chat with Hayden, where we talked about the craft of writing a good joke, the need for comedy to punch up in order to prevent harm against marginalized communities. And we talked about how social media, especially TikTok and Instagram, have served as vital tools for content creators, especially for marginalized communities to reach a broader audience during the pandemic. Prepare your diaphragm for some deep belly laughs because you're going to need it during this episode of Take the Last Bite. Y'all, we cannot do this. We cannot be these stereotypical Midwesterners. Please eat the rest of this food. We just have these conversations every day with people. Like, this is exhausting. I don't want to do this anymore. (laughs) Why can't we be in space with hundreds of other queer and trans folks and having these necessary conversations? I don't know who you are, but we're going to talk by the potatoes for five minutes. Because aesthetic is the only thing keeping my dysphoria at bay. Yeah, I'm broke all the time, but I look amazing. Definitely going to talk about Midwest nice. And if that's, if that's, um, as real as it wants to think it is. Midwest nice is white aggression. That's what it is. All right, fam. Um, we can get into it. We're freshly fed. I'm a little comatose, but it's been maybe many hours since we've eaten because we've been prep talking for like three hours before sitting down on my office couch to have this conversation. So why don't we start off with you talking about who you are in a nutshell. I'm Hayden. I am a public speaker and stand-up comedian. Um, I'm, I talk about intersectional accessibility or broadly, how do we make our resources the most available to the widest range of whole, complex, multidimensional people Um, and part of what I talk about and focus on, um, not on the comedy side is, um, intersections that we don't think about when we talk about intersectionality. So, um, parts of us that make up who we are and influence how we understand and perceive things that aren't necessarily connected to a marginalized identity, things that intersect with our other identities in ways that we don't talk about in traditional discussions of intersectionality. Um, but how those shape our our worldview and our experience and the way we navigate spaces, um, and how those identities and the intersection intersections uh, can create barriers to access in ways that we don't necessarily think about. Is that what you were going for? <laughs> yes. I was on TV. Yes. <laughs> so you've got like five dozen hats that I think we can talk about, but that feels high level and like a good like summation of how you approach probably all those roles. Um, yeah, I think so. And I feel like that that also is how, like, you and I kind of came into each other's ecosystem, which we were talking about earlier, which, like I, like I said, I can't pinpoint exactly, like, when you and I met face-to-face right. and or when you and I met under circumstances that were not about <laughs> how an event that I was putting on did not meet appropriate and legal standards of accessibility. I was going to say, legal standards. <laughs> Um, so, like, that being said, that is how you and I came into each other's ecosystem, is you doing your 
KSL workshop. Has it always been the KSL workshop, or did you have like a? It's always been KSL. <laughs> That's fine. Um, so you do so your KSL workshop that you've presented at Mumble Tech for eight years. Yes. Yeah, just a few. Yeah. Um, I started is, when I was twelve, and now I'm a hot, thriving twenty-year-old on TikTok. <laughs> hot and thriving. Um, so that's kind of been like how I came to know you and how your relationship with Mumble Tech and the Institute kind of came about, but that's not your pigeonhole. Like that's not the only thing you do. Um, which is what else I want to talk about, obviously. Yeah. But, um, I'm curious if you do want to talk a little bit about just like the experience of doing that workshop in the Midwest for a little bit and like why, why that was like where you started with doing, like, professional presenting? Because now that's, like, your full-time job, like, is professional yeah. speaking. And Isn't so that... is that, like, the launch pad? Mobile Tech was the launch pad. Yeah. That was my first time ever doing anything like that. And what I did eight years ago was, like, a very baby proto version of what I do mm-hmm. today. And I think, to be honest, and I, t- I don't talk about this when I talk about speaking things, but I do when I talk to other comics. I think if I had known that you could just go do open mics and do stand-up, like, I wouldn't be... A public speaker <laughs> like I think that if I had known that you could just go like I love performing and I think that I had I known that you could just go do that I would have just gone and done that I mean I'm obviously very happy with where I am and mm-hmm. I love the fact that uh, I get to do I get to perform in a way that has an impact uh, and in a way that's meaningful and cont- contributory to my community but um, I wouldn't be doing anything that I was doing if it wasn't for Mumble Tech mm-hmm. and, and having that platform and the ability to flex those muscles and be on stage mm-hmm. and realize that that's what I love doing. Sure. And Mumble Tech and doing, like, I wouldn't be presenting if it wasn't for Mumble Tech and I wouldn't be doing, I was already working full time as a public speaker when I started doing stand-up and I didn't, I didn't know it when I started, but what I had been doing was just, like, stand up with a thesis statement. So it's, it's like, <laughs> which is what GSL is. I actually want to pitch GSL to, like, a fringe festival as a, like, one-person show. Because it is funny and mm-hmm. weird. It is art of some kind, outsider <laughs> art. But, like, um, yeah, if it wasn't for, for Mumble Tech, I never would have ended up where I am. And I, I like where I am and what I'm doing. I can't, I wouldn't want to do anything else. And I also, there are, like, certain people where you're just, like, it's good you're doing that thing that you're doing because I don't know what we as society would do with you otherwise. (laughs) (laughs) And, like, I have an uncle in the military, and, like, you meet him, and you're like, yeah. Like, you are exactly what I envision, and I cannot picture, like, you could never work at, like, a Chuck E. Cheese. (laughs) Like, do you know what I mean? It's just, I feel like I'm one of those people where it's, like, it's a good thing you found what you're doing, because I literally don't know what else we would do with you. (laughs) Well, and I think what you're doing is such, like, a um, departure from what you think of. I feel like maybe outside of queer circles anyway. When you say professional speaker, right? Like, I feel like you get this, like, Wolf on Wall Street life coach-esque, like, oh, yeah. hype man professional speaker. And, like, yeah, so yeah, you yeah. do the professional speaking circuit. Now you've got this, like, stand-up comedy venture. You're also an aspiring spokesperson for the Duluth like... Aquarium. <laughs> <laughs> like, you, you studied something very, like, different than what you're doing now. Like, just, like... I would give it all up to be a spokesmodel for the Duluth Aquarium. Which, if they hear this, I'm still interested in working with you. COVID messed that up, but I'm on board still. 
But, um, yeah, people ask me all the time, like, are you a motivational speaker? And I'm like, I hope that people do something with the information <laughs> I give them. Like, I hope that they act on it, but, like, it's not, the point is not to be motivational. Mm -hmm. Like, I hope they are motivated to do something. It would be a bummer if I just <laughs> did all that, and they were, like, neat, and then didn't change anything that they did. Mm -hmm. But, yeah, I think it's, or people think of, like, um, Hillary Clinton getting paid, like, $250,000 to speak for a bank. Mm -hmm. Like, <laughs> funny enough, I'm speaking for a bank. <laughs> that's the virtual event. That's the twist. <laughs> yeah, that's the twist. Um, yeah, but people don't, I think that people don't think of, like, young people or, mm -hmm. I would say, like, I don't necessarily come across as somebody who is, and I say this in the in the least, like, not as a joke, I don't always come across as somebody who would, I don't seem like a, like a, a learned professional all the time <laughs> in conversation. So I, I guess I just don't think of somebody, I don't think of myself as what I would, like, imagine a lecturer to be. Mm -hmm. You know what I mean? Mm -hmm. Like, when you see, even uh, though it's my job, like, if you were, said somebody was, like, did professional college and corporate speaking, I am not what I think of mm -hmm. when I hear that. Right. So then you know, you kind of started with the venture of doing the workshops, which I think is a specific type of speaking, right? Even at the conference, you know, that's a certain venue, even though it's college students. And so you can be, at least I think, maybe more casual or like For sure. off the cuff. You can cuss, like all these other things that are already a departure from like... Well, so here's the thing that I've been learning because I've been transitioning into doing more corporate work, which sure. any businesses listening, I love doing corporate work. And... um before I started doing corporate work, I had this kind of, I mean, it's the same thing where I think, like, I say I don't think of myself as being, like, what we think of a speaker as being. I found that the same energy, obviously the energy that I bring, I am more casual. I do cuss. Like, I do, I joke, you know, I tell jokes within the workshop. It's very conversational. It's not get on a stage and talk at people. Um, but I I think that that is, like, that's transition. I, I do a similar style when I do corporate events. Mm -hmm. And I think that it may have been born out of starting as a college student and working with college students. Mm -hmm. But I think that that has become or, or is or was, like, wherever it's rooted, is, is a communication style. Yeah. And has become kind of a deliberate choice in terms of uh, how I approach educating people. Yeah. And as, like, a, as like a tactic of communication to keep it that way. So it very well may be born out of the fact that it started with colleges. Mm -hmm. Colleges have been my bread and butter. Yeah. We were just talking about how many colleges I've done. So I buy many. a pennant at every school that I do, which started as a cute thing when I was invited to speak at like one or two colleges and I thought it would be a cool thing. But now there's hundreds of them. So I have hundreds of these little felt flags for schools that I didn't go to. Um, so it's like, what am I supposed to do? But it's, it, it's like a chicken and the egg thing. I do think it's an effective communication style, but it is very different than I think what other mm -hmm. people are doing. Which, you know, I think speaks to, like, what is the expectation on education? And I think is important, like, as an educator here, too, right? Like, I've been to trainings that are, you know, maybe dry or just very, like, clerical or just not very, like, exciting or entertaining. And totally. even, even talking about, like, how college students experience lectures or the classroom, right? Like they want things that are interactive, they want things that are dynamic, they want things that are totally. hands-on, right? So just, like, how much are you going to retain or how much are you going to remember about what might be a required training, depending on the, like, environment? Um, yeah. 
if it's not something that's, like, memorable. Right. I I feel like, I mean, I have rabid ADHD, and so I feel like Mm -hmm. I want to create stuff. Like, I want to create stuff. I can't do this if I'm bored by myself. Mm Mm-hmm. Like, I need to enter... I'm, like, a little parakeet, like, just making noises at myself to keep myself entertained. But, like, I do a lot... Like you said, I wear a lot of different hats. Like, I do a lot of different things. But the the common thread of everything that I do is communication. And I talk about what I love about comedy is that for a joke to be successful, it's, like, I see something in a weird way. Like, I have this perception of the world that is, like, a little bit off, a little bit skewed through, like, this little bit of a warped lens. And... I, like, if I tell you that, if I, if I tell a joke and you laugh at it, that means that you've understood my perspective exactly in the way I do, that I've communicated Mm. that to you exactly the way that I've experienced it and that we're able to connect there. So I, I, that's what I like. It's like high wire communication with comedy. It's like, I think this is funny. This is something that I've noticed. Can I convey that to you in a way that makes you understand my perspective, which is what speaking is too, mm. and particularly speaking about what I speak about in my lived experiences and recognizing the lived experiences of other people and teaching empathy. You know, it's the same thing. It's just different. It's just different jokes, I guess. Like it's just different <laughs> bits. It, mm-hmm. But it's it's this is how I experience things, and the laughter is the confirmation that you're understanding. Mm-hmm. So I feel like for me, in teaching, laughing is really good feedback. And have I communicated this thing that I want to communicate in the, in the exact way that I intended? Yeah. Because if I write a joke and if, if it lands, like, f- laughter is usually really honest. People don't laugh at jokes if they aren't funny. Like, you know when a joke bombs. Like, <laughs> I'm sure everybody listening is not funny. So everybody knows. No, I'm kidding. But like, <laughs> when a joke bombs, people know. And so, and it's, it's very honest, immediate, like, instinctual feedback about whether or not the mm-hmm. thing that I'm saying is mm-hmm. connecting with you. Yeah. I think too, right, like, you know, because I've seen your workshop or at least snippets of it multiple times now, and I think another breaking of convention is that when some folks maybe go to a training or a class, they don't know if they're allowed to laugh, right? Like, even if there is a joke, right. it might be, like, cautious laughter, right. right? Because you're in an environment that is being presented as, like, this is serious, or, like, this is required, or, like, this is something that you have to do to meet your degree requirements. Right. So, um, you know, it tightens things up maybe, at least I For think, sure. right? That yeah. doesn't, you know, that I think the way that you do your signature workshop breaks that convention and it invites folks in to say, like, we can be real people in this space and I'm going to give you really vital information that you came here to, to learn. Or, I mean, part of the thing I like about corporate stuff is that, like, when I do college stuff, it tends to be the groups that bring me tend to self-select out to be people who are already sold, who are already on board Mm -hmm. with social justice. When I do corporate stuff, it's mandatory. Sure. Like, so I like having it be entertaining because I feel like it helps get buy-in from people who don't necessarily Mm buy-in. I think it creates a little bit of room for vulnerability and for, uh, like, giving what what I have to say a chance to, like, actually listen to it if you're waiting for a joke. I feel, you know what I mean? It's mm-hmm. like you're, you're processing what I'm saying. So even if you don't necessarily agree or you're not necessarily interested, at least there's, at least I'm getting you to take the words in and think about them. And I feel like if you can get people to laugh about this, it's like, and we were talking about this earlier, not everybody has had the privilege to to be educated and have, have social fluency in social justice spaces. And I feel like people are so afraid of making mistakes 
that mm. it prevents people from wanting to learn. Mm-hmm. Like, if you're so afraid of saying something offensive, and the, the hard part about that is that it specifically targets people who mean well. Because mm-hmm. if you mean well, you don't want to say something, but if you don't have access to that information, mm-hmm. then you don't know, mm-hmm. and you're just not going to ask. So I feel like creating an environment where it's okay to laugh and joke, I think it takes out some of the tension of, of misstep with words. Mm-hmm. I mean, I love words. I, I, like, I'm a... I'm, a joke writer I I love writing I love words and I love talking about linguistics and the meaning and, and specificity and word choice but I think that um, making jokes it kind of uh, takes away some of that the power and the sharpness that we feel our words have like there's a little more flexibility mm-hmm. yeah Which, I think two things can be true right like words do have power and especially queer and trans folks like Words can be access points into understanding deeper senses of self, accessing, like, connectivity with larger community. Um, And, right, something I was telling you earlier is that uh, last month, my partner and I went to go see John Waters, who, like, on paper, right, some of the ways that he phrased things and some of the things that he said, right, if we were in certain spaces, like people would be unhappy, right? And, like, I kind of felt the rub, too, in certain places. And, like, that's not to say that I didn't find the content really funny, um, and that there was some really, like, valuable things, you know, out of this, like, monologue, which was kind of part comedy, because he's, you know, funny, but then also talking about his career with filmmaking, um, and what you and I were kind of talking about with that is that we can look at someone like John Waters, who's in his 70s, who says things like the trans, which isn't ideal, but But also look at the things that he's done, where I was telling you that two days before that gig, he had been at a grand opening of two multi-stall gender-neutral bathrooms at an art museum named after him, because he's like, I want bathrooms named after me, which is totally, like, on-brand John Waters. It is. It's fantastic. But I feel like, so we both, when you said the trans earlier, we both laughed, because it's it's an awkward way to phrase things. Yes. But I think part of why joking works in this context and educating and social justice, I feel like if you're phrasing, like, if you're setting it up that I'm going to phrase things awkwardly, deliberately, Mm -hmm. it makes it okay for people to do it accidentally. Mm -hmm. It makes it okay for people to be experimental and use the language that they have, even if they don't know if it's 100% correct. Because I'm up at the front of the room, and I've deliberately set the tone that I will be saying goofy stuff. Sure. And I'm still respected, and I still know what I'm talking about, and I'm still a part of the conversation. And I think it just sets tonally that it's not... We're not looking for perfection. We're not looking for, for... like rigidity and seriousness Mm -hmm. and I think it gives you a little bit more freedom to like setting a precedence of goofiness even in serious topics I feel like it gives people who who maybe who who need to learn who are there who have the most to learn and and want to learn the most and and to grow the most it gives them permission to do that in a way that's safe yeah or that feels safe Mm mm-hmm I feel like John Waters is not someone who's going to necessarily reject <laughs> being, like, told and, right, like, he might have a counteroffer to be like, I understand where you're at and here's my, like, life experiences totally. of his own queerness, which I think is precedent setting. We talked about that, too. Like, yeah. there's things over the course of, like, his life that broke a lot of conventions about sexuality and gender and queerness and that's not going to be everybody's you know, possibility model for their shade of queerness. And he opened a lot of doors for a lot of, like, other people. Totally. Um, so, I th- you know, 
in, as far as the type of comedy or the type of raunchiness that he has done through his certain medium being film in a similar way as the medium for you being comedy and professional speaking yeah. um, and kind of a slew of other things kind of scrambled in between, yeah. right? Like the medium I think matters um, if the objective is to educate or to influence people or to motivate people. Um, so I feel like a question that is helpful to kind of further contextualize, like you started the workshop you know, building your signature workshop in college, doing that, you did a TED Talk kind of, wasn't that also while you were in undergrad or was that? It was undergrad. Undergrad, so right around the same time, doing kind of workshop style, TED Talk style speaking. When did the comedy and stand-up stuff come into play? Because you said earlier that if you'd known that you could just hop on an open mic and, you know, play around with that, that might have been a medium that emerged for you sooner. So, in retrospect, like, there, having worked, I started stand-up, like, straight stand-up right after I graduated college. I started in, in September of 2016, and that's a really obnoxious story. But so, I mean, it's an obnoxious story, and preemptively, I'm sorry. So, <laughs> I wanted to start doing stand-up when I graduated. I was already, when I graduated, I was paying for college. I was making a living doing speaking, and... I had been thinking I'd want to do comedy, so I, I entered this writing thing for Full Frontal with Samantha B, which is a political comedy show. Okay. And I was the finalist for that out of like a thousand people. Damn. And then they ended I don't think they were expecting Trump to get elected and they ended up <laughs> they were like, We have other shit to focus on, which is fine. Anyways, I got this positive external feedback from this this right you know, comedy comedy writers room and so I decided that I was gonna go do this thing called Stand Up for Diversity, which is NBC does this like cattle call talent search every year um where they prioritize like diverse voices in comedy which is really cool it's not televised or anything it's just something they do to find diverse talent and if you look at their writer's room they i mean they have they do a good job and it's part of partly because they invest in doing stuff like this but so i went for fun i had no delusions that i was going to win i just figured i had never waited overnight in line for anything (laughs) and it would be like a fun thing to do and it was far enough away that if it if it sucked, nobody ever, nobody I knew in real life ever had to know about it. So my first time on stage was for the audition, and then my second time was the callback, and then my third time was doing the showcase for NBC, um, which is ridiculous. That's a ridiculous thing. Um, but now I look back and I'm like, it makes sense because I, I had been on, I didn't know like how you tell how much time you've done on stage. Mm. I didn't know that. Like I didn't know some of like the like the the nitty-gritty comedy stuff, but I had been getting on... I had been writing jokes and telling jokes in front of an audience for years. Yeah. Like, I had had hours and literal Like, hours and hours and hours and hours and hours worth of stage experience by the time I did stand-up. And a lot of the jokes that I do, that I had been doing before I started to stand-up, I still do because I still think, even from, like, from like a professional comic standpoint now, I'm like, these are still good jokes. Mm. It's just good writing so I feel like the line is a little blurred like in terms of mm-hmm. I, I don't feel like my speaking changed at all I feel like the comedy grew out of that and there's times I, I mean I do different jokes my set is not the same obviously as I tend to be really apolitical in my comedy um which is like a weird thing that I've been thinking about a lot <laughs> but like um, the, so it's different sets, but like the structure of joke, there are jokes that I do 
in like ASL and some of my other workshops that I do on stage because I'm like this is just, or I'll workshop stuff that I'm working to tell on stage in like in a speech or a workshop and mm -hmm. like oh did that get a laugh great then I know that that works and <laughs> it's just free stage time baby but uh I I think it just grew out of that my style didn't really change and I don't feel like I mean obviously like there is a thesis statement to speaking but I feel like the way I present the jokes and the way I craft the jokes are like it doesn't feel disconnected to me it feels like the same thing sure I don't feel like there's two different sides of that or like I'm writing one or the other it feels mm -hmm. like the same writing process to me a joke that I formed throughout the pandemic that I only really shared with myself <laughs> but or I should say time. I should say a pattern I tracked but that became a joke to self is that like there were these like fad things that I feel like folks picked up over the course of the pandemic. So I would say one of the earliest ones was sourdough starters. Yep. And then somehow, at least in my circle, and maybe this was just like the queer like trajectory of what the fuck did you get into during the pandemic? Plants was ubiquitous. Yeah. But then I also felt like sometime a quarter of the way into the pandemic, I knew half a dozen people who were either getting or wanting to get their nipples pierced. Um, okay. And yeah. Um, and then somewhere along the way, like several references to folks saying like, I'm just going to start doing stand-up comedy. Um, yeah. And, and none of those folks, um, to my knowledge, currently are actively doing any kind of stand-up. But, but what I, I feel like I tracked out of like, those little like interactions with folks talking about at least aspiring to do stand-up or talking about it was... Um, a lot of, like, their material would probably be rooted in, like, the trauma of being, like, a queer and trans person. Yeah. Um, which, like, would that, I don't know where the question is in there, but that, that no, seemed I... to be, that seemed to be a trend, right? Just, like, turning trauma in as fodder for yeah. content. Yeah, no, and I, I, I mean, obviously you, that can work. I, and we, the, the rough part with comedy <laughs> is that the comedy that you see Comedy's supposed to look effortless, right? I mean, it's kind of like, it's like listening to, like, Adele or Demi Lovato and, like, you're like, every fucking note is perfect. Of course it is. Like, they've been practicing this and mm. then it was produced, like, in a, in a studio by people who spend, you know, thousands of dollars and hours and hours, like, tweaking every little thing to get it exactly right. Like, comedy is supposed to look so effortless and I feel like people think that it is. And then you look at something like Bo Burnham's... Um, what was it, Inside, Outside? I forget no, what it was sure. called. I loved it. I feel super disrespectful that I don't remember what the name is. But it was, a, it was um, you know, him unpacking his trauma about the, about the pandemic in a way that's super funny. And I feel like, obviously, that can work. Obviously, you can communicate trauma in a way that's funny and relatable to other people. Uh, I feel like a lot of people don't understand um, what a monstrous amount of effort and skill and time and practice goes into mm. being able to do that mm -hmm. to be able to take something that's painful and upsetting and, and communicate it in a way that's funny I, I feel like so many like, and that is a frustrating thing I see a lot of people a lot of marginalized people wanting to share that trauma and communicate that trauma and, and again like I said the beauty of comedy is that it is communicating like when you laugh at my joke I feel understood mm -hmm. I feel like I've communicated my experience to you and that's the beauty of comedy but it also takes such a, a deft-practiced hand, D-E-F-T, deft-practiced hand <laughs> to, uh, to be able to communicate that trauma in a way that allows people to laugh. Mm -hmm. And I feel like 
that is maybe kind of a, uh, a sticking point or, or a place where a lot of marginalized people getting into comedy get stuck sure. because it seems like it doesn't seem like it would be such a you know we don't see that part of it we don't see people who are communicating their difficult experiences like famous comics you know writing and refining we don't see the people who are doing that like mm -hmm. the people we'll see 10 years from now are doing that right now sure. like people who have Netflix specials in 5 years right now are out there bombing with jokes mm -hmm. about personal stuff the ability to, to take that to the next level mm -hmm. is, is something that's so rare and has to be refined I feel like people try it and don't get the response they want because of course when you're starting anything you're not going to be good at it mm -hmm. I wasn't good at speaking when I started. Sure. I think I had some natural skill, but like I, you know, it was something that had to be practiced and, and shaped and, and developed just like anything else. And so people get on stage, and I think particularly marginalized people get on stage telling jokes about things that are very personal. And when they don't go well, not because they're inherently unfunny people or untalented, but just because they are new and that's a particularly hard place to go with mm -hmm. comedy. It, it's the sting of bombing hurts and then it's with the additional like sharing something vulnerable I, I think drives a lot of people away sure. so my advice for people who are starting in comedy is don't do that <laughs> like I think comedy is not a forgiving medium sure so my advice would be that if you want to use something as a way to kind of communicate trauma and talk about it and express it I think start in comedy if you want to but don't don't let bad reactions to that or whatever don't let that dictate whether or not you continue if it's something you really want to do and if it's something you really want to do maybe don't set yourself up for failure or disappointment or frustration by going there out of the gate I see that a lot mm -hmm. I don't even remember what you asked but uh, <laughs> oh during the pandemic lots of people yeah I think I was just naming up. that like folks are kind of looking at or you know and I don't know how like I don't want to say legit but just like how genuine maybe like the folk you know these folks who have named this I just I don't know I feel like suddenly I had like several folks in my yeah, ecosystem no, who were like I want to go do that. like I would I want to go do stand-up and in some ways I'm like well maybe we just set up an open mic to like have that be an outlet right like maybe it's not this thing kind of with you kind of having this be this emerging career trajectory for you that you want to to build and build whereas folks just kind of need an outlet and dry comedy and totally. satirical comedy, right? Like, you know, it, there's maybe a difference. Like, but maybe even, we just need, like, a cathartic open mic night for folks to be able to capture that experience. And in the least, I mean this in the most <laughs> neutral way I can possibly say it, like, that's what slam poetry's for. Sure. Like, I don't know, I dunk on slam poets a lot, but I don't like being vulnerable. I have a I have what? difficulty with that. What? And <laughs> I respect that slam poets are able to... It's the same thing. It's all about communication and communicating perspective, and I feel like slam poets are able to do it with a lot more vulnerability. Um, the trade-off from that is that I feel like there's less rigid expectations. Like, there's expectation... Like, if you say something and it's supposed to be a joke and people don't laugh, then it's a failure. Like, but where, and you get that immediate, if people don't laugh at it, then it's like that immediate public feedback. Mm. And I feel like maybe starting with spoken word or something, if it's not specifically stand-up comedy that you want to do, because spoken word can be funny. Like, but if there, there's less of a pressure or expectation. So if it's not, if it's just communicating that you want to do, a broader open mic 
might be a better place. Yeah. And if you start writing stuff that works, then go start doing it as stand-up. Yeah. But I feel, I feel like comedy is, you have to do it for the love of the art form. Mm. And I feel like for people who are able to share those personal stuff and, and communicate trauma in that way, I feel like it's born out of a real love for the art form and not the other way around. It's not born out of a need to communicate trauma. Sure. It's it's something that blossoms out of having a really long and in-depth and, and comprehensive understanding of the art form and an mm -hmm. appreciation for it and how it works and being able to use that. I, I don't think coming out of it or coming into it saying that that's the goal. And I feel like that was a lot of people during the pandemic. There, I mean, there's a lot of people who got into it who just love stand-up and were like, fuck it, I'm going to try stand-up. But I feel like there's also a lot of people who are just like looking for for a way to express themselves. And it sounds terrible to be like, don't do that. But it is not the most forgiving sure. medium in terms of just getting stuff out there. Yeah. Um, well, and we know how much Midwesterners love, you know, feedback. Yeah. <laughs> I.e. conflict via feedback. Right. Um, I, I wonder, too, right, like, that makes sense. Like, it 100% does. I'm wondering, too, like, how much does it also have to do with like the audience right like for marginalized comedians or writers right oh, like totally. right like the receptivity you know if you're a queer and trans person doing a you know your audience is primarily not that right like right. the landing is gonna probably be even like the landing strip is probably gonna be even narrower right like to really kind of convey or not like, well, tell so, me so tell me is, um <laughs> Your audience can't see it, but I'm smirking. So this is a conversation I've had with a lot of comics. So when I start my stand-up, I say that I don't want to be pigeonholed as, like, a deaf comedian. I just want to be, like, a female comedian. Um, which is a great joke. But also, like, <laughs> in comedy, there will be, like, um, there's, like, like, X comics. So, like, there's gay comics and, like, there's, like, you know what I mean? Like, yeah. there will be... an there are, like, lots of people who do that and love it and are great at it. Like, um, there's, like, in comedy, we call it, like, urban rooms, which are, like, black rooms. And, like, there are comics that make their whole career on doing, like, mostly urban rooms. And, like, because they can speak to a black experience that a white comic just can't. And mm -hmm. black audiences want to see that. And they have those moments, like, where that is what they want to connect on and laugh about. And, like, people make a whole career on that. The same with, like, there's gay comics, there's Christian comics, like... People can definitely find their niche. Um, I feel like there's a difference between finding your niche and um, being dependent on something. Okay. Do you know what I mean? Like, and I'm not saying this of like people who do specific rooms. Like the people who are out there crushing are out there crushing it. But I feel like sometimes people who have one particular identity get. I don't know if I want you there, but like people get hung up on that one identity, and if it becomes all you talk about it in a way that's not you can't. Or you, not you can't or you aren't, but, like, if, if it's all you talk about in a way that's not relatable to somebody who hasn't had that experience, mm -hmm. then obviously that's not going to land. Sure. Um, and I think that the really gifted comics and communicators are the ones who can take that experience and communicate it mm -hmm. in a way that it does appeal to a mainstream audience. Sure. There's a clip on your Instagram, because obviously I did my homework, because uh -huh. I haven't seen, like, a lot of your comedy. I've primarily yeah. seen you in spaces where you're doing your, your workshopping, yeah. which we've talked about as overlaps. But there's a clip 
um, where you're telling a joke about um, applying to hang out with Coco. I actually applied to work there at the Coco Foundation while I was in college, and they rejected me because I have hearing loss. Uh, they said, super picky, right? Uh, but they said that it was a liability issue because if the gorilla were to sneak up on me, I would not be able to hear it, which, fair play, probably. I, the audiologist doesn't test for that, so I don't know for sure. <laughs> yeah, so like, not yeah. to be like, I'm the greatest writer who ever lived, but like. But that's an example of how, you know. Yeah, like that's a joke you about You made my... a bridge between. Right. And that's not a joke that you have to be a part of the deaf community to understand. Exactly. Like that's not something that you have to be like hard of hearing or to, to have gone through the struggle of being a hearing, like a, a hard of hearing or deaf person in a hearing world to get that. Mm-hmm. That's not. I'm trying to think of an example of, like, a joke. It, like, it's like inside jokes are great. Like, the jokes that you have with people yeah. who share that experience can be fantastic. Right. But it's just never going to land with other people. And yeah. and there, it's not that one is better than the other. It is just different. Right. And I feel like it's something to be aware of going in if you want to talk about your experience that is specific or is not mainstream. Yeah. Like, I think it's something to think about. Particularly because I think that... Um, it's not, and like what I talk about with intersectionality, it's not like that we all don't have those, everybody has those experiences that are unique mm-hmm. to them, and getting that across is like part of comedy. Um, like there's a comic who has a bit about like finding a bag of like porn magazines in the woods, and like that's not a universal experience, but like he communicates it in a way that makes us laugh. Like there, mm-hmm. I think again, I think sometimes people who are discussing those marginalized I see a lot of people who go in talking about experiences that are specific having those jokes not land with the mainstream audience mm-hmm. and I think maybe interpreting that feedback in a, in a in a way that it's not it's not that you're not funny or that you're not mm-hmm. good it's just that like you have to know what jokes are going to work for what audience and a lot of that yeah. comes with time and just not internalizing that like mm-hmm. Which, like, knowing your audience, regardless of what the medium is, whether you're writing, whether you're a filmmaker, right, like, just whatever the art form is, like, it's about right. knowing the audience. So if you're going, you know, let's say that there's a comedian coming to a queer conference, right, like, you know that certain references, certain language is going to land differently with that space. Right. So I think, I th- you know, I think what I'm gleaning, right, is there a di- there's a distinction and, like, a craft to how to nestle, like, insider jokes or insider language in a way that doesn't close off access to the content from an audience, right? And so if you're kind of just going to um, maybe an open mic at a space that's going to be a broader audience, right? Like, is there tact then involved with, you know, I may make this reference still, but I have to tweak tweak it. And so I I guess my question too, right, is just, like, how you know, whether it's for you or things that you've witnessed with other maybe marginalized joke writers and comedians, right? Like, how do you maintain the integrity of your experience and your content in a way that doesn't um, betray it to, like, 
a cishet gaze or like other folks kind of betraying it to, to not, um, yeah, to not lose the integrity of like yeah. your experiences and your content. Well, I think it's what I talk about in my workshops. It's like, mm-hmm. I am not, I am a deaf queer person and I am an, I consider myself an activist and I work in social justice, but that's not like all of who I am. Right. And so I also, I have dogs. I have too many dogs. Like, but the, like, dogs are something super relatable. So if I'm someplace where I know, mm-hmm. like, I perform a lot in the rural south, and I really like it, and I do great there, but it's, like, you know, we all like dogs. We all have dogs. You know what I mean? Like, mm-hmm. so that's something that's true to my experience. Sure. And I don't feel like I'm leaving out. I don't feel like I'm being dishonest about mm-hmm. who I am. But if it's just something that I know you're not going to get, like, I'm trying to, I'm like, what the gay culture thing? But, like... I'm not going to make gay culture references at, like, a bar in wherever Alabama, because I know that's not going to hit. Like, it doesn't mean that I'm, like, lying about who I am. It just means, like, I'm choosing to connect with you and communicate at points where Mm. I feel like you're going to understand what I'm Mm -hmm. saying. Right. I feel like interpreting and being bilingual made me a better comedian. Sure. Because it's all about, like, framing things so that people understand and Mm. finding points of connection and reference. And... I think that that's an important part of comedy. I mean, like, it's the thing is, like, you can perform for a variety of audiences that's not just people who are exactly like you. Yeah. You know what I mean? And I think it's made me a more understanding person in, in having to, in being professionally and financially obligated to find points of connection with people that I maybe wouldn't mm-hmm. do so just yeah. in terms of friendship. Right. Well, and I, I feel like, too, you know, <laughs> you opting to have a majority of your content be about the dogs or farming or rural, (laughs) rural living. Right. Right. Does not suddenly make your content any less queer, even though you're not telling explicit like queer jokes or doesn't make it any less, you know, deaf culture related if you're not explicitly telling jokes, right. Just by nature of who you are. Right. Um, so I think that's, I think that makes sense. I feel like it's less authentic for me to not do those. Do you know what I mean? Like, I feel like it would be less authentic for me to only do things about these specific parts of my identity mm-hmm. because it is a huge part of my identity, but it's not all that I mm-hmm. am. Right. And, you know, and for some people, like, who do the majority of their content, as long as that's, like, true to who they are, mm-hmm. I think that's great. Yeah. Like, you don't have to get into comedy to be, like... Trying to think of somebody who's like real famous and isn't in like hot shit right now. Uh, oh my god. <laughs> you need to. You don't have to get into it to be Amy Schumer. You know what I mean. You don't have to get into it to to have the Netflix special and to be yeah. in movies and shit. Like most of my favorite comics don't. Yeah. Like because they're people who have a more niche audience than everybody in America. Yeah. And their stuff really resonated with me. And it's not going to resonate with everybody, but that's the point of art is, like, that connection. And I feel like comedy feels like higher stakes, and I feel like it feels more personal because the art of comedy is in the connection with the audience. It's the only only art form that requires an audience. Mm. Um, You can sing a song by yourself, and you can write a poem, but you can't tell a joke because the art of the joke is in how people respond to it. Mm -hmm. So... Right, like, if you say something alone in your room, 
I laugh at myself. So is it a joke? <laughs> but like, do you know what I mean? Yes. Is it a joke without an audience? You can't. It's the only thing you can't practice with an without an audience for sure. And so I feel like it. And it's that immediate, honest, instinctual, guttural feedback that yeah. I think makes people take it really personally. Um, if it goes well or doesn't go well, and I think makes it feel like more of a personal art form in general. Mm -hmm. um, so I, I feel like it tends to get, you don't hear these songs about like music. Like you don't hear about people like gay, like musicians being like, your songs aren't gay enough. Yeah. Like you don't hear it about like poets and stuff or writers like, oh, these don't speak to your experience. You hear a lot about comics, like, mm. but, but I think it just speaks to the nature of the medium about connection. Mm -hmm. I, I wonder too, I wonder then, because it is about that point of connection, like you could, I feel like you have to have a relationship with either the specific story that you have that happened to you or you're talking about your identities, right? I don't think you can go up and like, I guess, I don't know, you're the, you're the pro here, not me, but like, I don't know that you can just go up and speculate on something that you have no relationship with in comedy. I mean, you can, we're going to talk about that in a second, but, <laughs> no, I... but like, I don't think that you can like be so far removed from like... I feel like comedy no, I, that I enjoy at least is a lot of obs like social commentary and I don't think that folks can effectively make social commentary if they're not immersed in like the social settings in which they're they're doing some kind of commentary right maybe that's yeah, very no, broad I, I and totally, national no I I was thinking I was like well you can do jokes about like not being a part of that or not understanding but I feel like even to craft a good joke about not being a part of things you right. have to understand right like, yeah I cannot no, I go up and craft a joke about being a ballerina because I'm not a ballerina right like I'm too far removed from like that setting somehow yeah. I guarantee I could interwork something about a ballerina into my because <laughs> yeah no <laughs> that's I, a whole side yeah, setting like I, you, you know but just like I think you have to be so many degrees closer to a circumstance to be able to do it otherwise I feel like you're you're closer to making a misstep which I feel like is where I want to try to like get us where I'm trying to go oh, yeah, is yeah. that like we kind of just talked pretty extensively about how do you incorporate your own personal narratives, your own stories, and your own experiences. And so I I think we should talk a bit about what happens when, like, you co-opt or you take on talking about experiences for sake of comedy that aren't yours. Because I think yeah. the audience also plays a particular role in that. Because I think there's this weird thing that you don't really see necessarily afforded to other art forms in the same way to kind of have this, like, protective layer over comedy to say that like comedy cannot do can do no wrong right comedy like it's just you know yeah why can't you take a joke like yeah, it's just yeah, supposed yeah. to be funny right like you don't really get that with other like art forms in the same no. way to say like oh everything is fair game everything's on the table well i think you do with like visual mediums you're but i think that because comedy is inherently subversive like do you know what i mean like sure. um, joking has always been like politically and socially a way to push the envelope and to test waters and to, and to drive to I mean to, to like drive social mores in a different direction mm -hmm. to, to stretch and, and and play with the bounds of what we're comfortable with sure and so I feel like I don't know this is I love talking about this but it's such a complicated thing so you have that where it's like I feel like a huge part of the history of stand-up comedy is like being subversive and pushing social norms and and saying things that are unexpected or like, you know, pushing into what we're not talking about, but finding those points of connection there. Mm -hmm. I feel like that's a huge part of comedy. And so, and recognizing the fact that it is a craft and that like, you have to work to 
put those jokes together and you have to test them and, and sometimes you're just gonna, it's just not gonna work. Mm -hmm. But also, I feel like people use that as a crutch and they do use that as an excuse to talk about things that they don't know about. And I think mm. that's lazy comedy and I don't think it's good writing. Mm. Um, they're just saying that good comedy should punch up. Mm. Which, yes. I was like, there's satire you can talk about. So I tell jokes about my deaf blind dog, Bitsy. Um, I have minutes worth of roast jokes about her. And there is no position from which my deaf blind baby rescue dog is up. Like, there's no way those jokes are punching up, but they're, like, the punching down is so egregious that it circles around and I become the joke. <laughs> like, the joke is okay. me. Do you know what I mean? Mm -hmm. Like, the writing is funny, but it's so ridiculous that I would say that. And so, like, old school family guys are a really good example of that. Like, where you're not supposed to, like, aspire or relate to be P Peter Griffin. Like, the audacity of what he's saying is part of the joke. Sure. And so the punching down is punching up in terms of that it's making fun of people who would say that and relate to that. Mm. But there's an art to crafting that kind of joke. Mm -hmm. And, like, I feel like sometimes people just use it was a joke to validate punching down just because it's something that they agree with. Yeah. So when I look at a joke, I look at the structure of it. When I'm, like, determining whether or not I find a joke offensive, I look at how it was told, what was the intention behind telling it, and then who is the joke aimed at. Mm. Like, is this a joke about... Like, when I write a joke about, like, the deaf or hard of hearing experience, I try to, like, even though it's my experience, I try to be cognizant of this, like, I don't 100% know. So I have a joke, like, you said you saw some of my comedy online. I don't put a lot of my comedy online. Sure. Um, and it's because I of what I do for my day job, I am very worried about people misinterpreting sure. what I say. And I feel like particularly without context, that's right for that. And it's like, it's a fight I just don't want to have mm -hmm. all the time. I, I don't say anything on stage that I don't stand by. Like, that's the thing. I, if I think that a joke, if I, don't, if I wouldn't want to defend it in a public context or if I couldn't, I won't say it on stage. Sure. But I don't want to have arguments about people with people who deliberately take things out of context. Mm. And so there are some jokes that I don't put online. A great example of one is I have a joke. So I was diagnosed with autism. We talked about this today. Um, I do a joke about how I'm not sure that I have autism. I think I have what I call type 2 autism, which is type 2, like type 2 diabetes and that it's lifestyle induced. Right? So that's not a joke. You know, when I was crafting that joke, the joke is not like, haha, like autistic people, people with autism are like weird or different or whatever. Like the, the joke is me and like the choices that I make mm -hmm. and how I live my life that have made me, influenced me to communicate in a way that could be read by others as a communication disorder, right? Mm -hmm. Like, that's the joke. The joke is not communication disorders, it, and it's not autism, but it's like, and while I, like, when I was crafting it, I was very deliberate about that. Like, the joke is not autistic people or the things that autistic people go through. The joke is about me, and it's about how I interact with people and how other people interact with other people. Like, it's, it's not autism. And... I'm doing a really shitty job of explaining it, but, like, I don't put that joke online because I just don't want to have that fight. Mm -hmm. And I'm very comfortable with it, and I'll sit here and tell you the whole joke if you want. I mean, it's awkward to just recite a joke to somebody, <laughs> but, like, I say, like, so I say I think I have type 2 autism, which is, like, type 2 diabetes, and that it's lifestyle-induced. So I say, like, uh, for example, if you were born with it, that's type 1. If you were homeschooled, though, that's type 2. I say if you have a legitimate neurodivergence... That's type one. 
but if you have like a lot of LARPing experience, <laughs> that's type two. The joke is not autistic people. Like the joke is like the things that we do that like impact right. our, our social and right. communication. It's like talking about how gay folks cannot, you can only get like, what is it? Two of the three. You either can drive, do math, and have a good relationship with your father, but you can't have all three. It's something like that, right? Yeah, yeah, Just yeah. like, I have a good relationship with my father. I can't do fucking math. Yeah, I mean, right? But like, like, that's yeah, not a knock. Yeah. Like, that's no, not no, necessarily yeah. a knock to like queer people. Like, it's a joke. Exactly. It's yeah. a joke. And it's. <laughs> Which is me doing exactly what I just said is sometimes weaponized against marginalized people. But like, in that sense, that is an insider contextual thing. Versus right. if someone who's cis and straight says, Gay people are stupid. Gay people can't do math. Right. And they're on stage trying to land that as a joke. Exactly. Well, and it's like, it's also, and I'm doing such a poor job of explaining that joke, partially because I'm very tired, but like, also because I'm autistic, but like, that's a great joke that I just gave right there, but <laughs> it's different because it's coming from me and it's, and it's how I relate to my own identity and yeah. my own experiences yep. of being neurodivergent, whatever label you want to put on it, whatever label medical professionals have put mm -hmm. on it. Uh, like, you have stake in that commentary. Right. It's my it's my experience. Yes. And and the butt of the joke is not, you know, look at these people. Mm -hmm. You know what I mean? It's the ha ha look at right. how stupid and terrible and whatever these people. Right. You are these people. It, like, is, kind <laughs> of, it is kind of that. I just kind of punching down at homeschool kids, but I'm fine with that. <laughs> I'll stand by that. Uh <laughs> sorry. <laughs> sorry. Uh but right, I I do think that that's weaponized. Mm -hmm. And so I think that you can do it in a way that's aware. Like, I feel like even if it's not your identity, people can make smart jokes that... I'm not, like, one of those... I don't believe that you have to be a part of that. It has to be your lived experience to tell a good joke about it. I do think the joke has to be thought out and well-written. And I think that you need to be deliberate about where the joke is aimed and what the point of the joke is. Sure. So I wish I could think of literally any examples. I, I think that just you can if you're informed on a subject you can craft a good joke that punches that that's loaded the cannon in the right way in the right direction yeah and but i feel like people will use it's a joke to defend what is just bad writing yeah you know and the reason this comes up obviously is that we're not too far removed from the most recent kind of com comedy round table battle right with Dave Chappelle's special and I don't think we need to go into the nitty-gritty because there's been many profound and brilliant things stated about that special specifically um we don't and so I will I will I will just say so I perform my my audience is college kids yeah like my I make the majority of my living off of college students and I have seen so many full-time famous professional comedians jerry seinfeld was bitching oh you can't do colleges anymore college kids are so sensitive as somebody who does colleges for a living no they're not yeah i say some true i do that autism joke at almost every college i do if i don't it's because i forgot or i mean <laughs> but i do jokes about abortion i use some slurs in some jokes and i've never had a complaint i feel like i feel like i do really well at colleges i've never had a complaint and the point like I get really defensive about that because college students are not hypersensitive. College students just want you to write more than haha black people. Yeah. Like college students don't think that's funny. Yeah. You have to have a good point, you have to have a good joke. College students don't like lazy, shitty, uninformed writing. Mm -hmm. 
Like, and I'm sorry if that's what you're making your bread and butter doing. I get yeah. heated about that. Like, because I think college students are great audiences. They're just more discerning than drunk people at an open mic at 1 a.m. Right. in whatever, you know, mm-hmm. last call bar you're in. And I think that if you're being intellectually honest, I think that you... I mean, that's why I like doing colleges, because I like the feedback on my jokes. Am I communicating this thing about a sensitive topic in a way that people who have this experience mm-hmm. and don't have this experience but are sensitive to people's experiences yeah. can laugh at it? Yeah. I think it's a great test of your writing ability. And I think, honestly, if you're telling a joke that college students aren't liking, it's a reflection on you. Yeah. You need to think about what the point of what you're communicating is. Yeah. I think your point about, like, what direction or, like, what is the objective of the joke makes sense. And I, you know, Dave Chappelle's not the first and won't be the last person to include, like, an inherently transphobic or homophobic joke in their special, right? It's also, you know, it's not like his entire special is start to finish anti-trans, right? There's this, this element to the entire special that maybe needs some refining, right? Maybe needs some education. Is it someone's role to hopefully, like, tap Dave on the shoulder and say, like, hey, can we, like, engage about this? Like, what was the objective? That'd be cool, but maybe that's not going to happen. Um, and I don't think it's going to happen. I don't think that he wants to. But the frustrating thing for me about Dave Chappelle is that he's clearly, and again, this has been said by so many people who will say it better, but, like, he stopped touring because he was conflicted about the way that white audiences were engaging with his jokes about black culture. Mm. His in-jokes about black culture was, are you laughing with us or at us? Sure. And I feel like for... And, and like, the Chappelle show, I think... The frustrating thing to me about it is that that... I see earlier Chappelle as somebody who... As a white person watching that, I see somebody who was uniquely one in a million talented at being able to take that experience, something that I have never and will never understand on a first-hand basis. Yeah. I'm never going to, will never understand their mm-hmm. living life as a black man mm-hmm. in America. Never, never going to, right? But I feel like he was somebody who was able to take that and explain it in a way that was funny and I could relate to parts of it so that I could empathize with that and mm-hmm. also laugh at it and feel comfortable. Like we talked about laughter as being the like, connection point, it made me feel more comfortable talking about these these difficult parts and the uncomfortable parts mm-hmm. of the the experience of a black man in America by making me laugh. It, it gave me an, an entry point to thinking about that in a more critical way and wanting to understand and grow. Mm-hmm. That's what's so frustrating is somebody who is truly gifted at that, mm-hmm. somebody who's displayed unbelievable competence at what is so difficult something like riding that razor's edge of our craft, somebody at the very peak of that, not understanding mm-hmm. that, that, that that's a, for somebody to botch that so bad, it's so disappointing. Yeah. Because I feel like he's somebody who's so uniquely good at it, and I want him to understand because he's so good at it. Yeah. Like, that, that's the frustrating thing. It's like, why don't you understand? And it's, it could be such a valuable asset because I know that that's a gift that he has. Yeah. And... You know, every, all of that has been said before by more eloquent people yeah. with more experience than me. But that's what mm-hmm. where my frustration lies. Yeah. I, I think with this latest, like, riff, Ray, because, like, we could name several individual comedians who've either botched things related to, to queerness and transness, like the this example. Um, but one of the things that I really appreciated witnessing out of this latest 
incident, right, was that a lot of attention, maybe even more so than I think I've seen with previous instances, right, was that a lot of the tension and, like, vitriol was projected towards, like, Netflix as, like, the hub for this, right? And so I, I'm, I'm kind of formulating this thought as I think of it, right? But, like, what does it look like and what does it mean to push on these, like, content you know, these big deal content hubs, these streaming services, these places where, you know, many eyes witnessed that that comedy special. And a lot of the ask, right, from other stuff I've read and heard, right, is not so much that folks expect that special to be taken down. It's that can Netflix, at the very least, put a trigger warning at the very beginning to say there may be content in this special that could be, you know offensive to xyz audience right yeah. in the same way that they do that with a lot of other content areas yeah right like watching the crown like they have language at the beginning of some of the episodes to yeah. say hey there may be you know there will be visualizations of eating disorder in right. some of this. so like that was actually the request it was not you know cancel dave Chappelle. it wasn't take this down it was can you at least communicate effectively and own the fact that you greenlighted content that includes right. something that folks are going to react to because uh, there were folks who worked for netflix there's a dozen issues with folks that worked at netflix yeah. are expressing but one of them was we didn't know that this was happening until the general public did there was no opportunity for anybody in-house to review this right. to say this is how the the receptivity might be um, even though there was, like, affinity groups and other, like, working groups within the Netflix right. structure that are doing, like, work around improving things for queer and trans people, right? They weren't conferred with. So all of that big jumble of monologue to say, right, like, what work or what, like, measures need to continue to maybe be bolstered and put in place so that... Even if there are things getting posted, right? Even though there's people continue to get contracted who may have contentious um, and problematic content, right? So that that there's at least a vetting process to figure out how to receive and respond appropriately to the fact that folks might have beef with this, right? Like if there's a Hayden Crystal special on Netflix and someone has beef with yeah. the you know the autism joke that you're telling, right? Like. Who in house at Netflix is going to have the opportunity to review that and say this is this is the blowback we might hear this is the you know responses we may have right just like not throwing it out there and then finding out you know we fucked yeah. up. <laughs> well, here's the thing. I mean, for a special, those jokes are practiced. Mm -hmm. I mean, again, it's not off the cuff. The stuff that they're doing in a special theoretically is something they've been practicing for a long time. Sure. They've been doing on stage and doing on the road. So theoretically, like hitting publish on Netflix is not the point where that feedback should come in. Sure. Like theoretically, long before the specialist tape that feedback should have come in. So where does the feedback come from? Like what like what should be in place or like what's what what marks are being missed that like the feedback's not being accounted for? Oh well I <laughs> I mean, just I, a simple question. Yeah, no, I, I would say, I mean, then you get into talk about like gatekeeping and like, I'm a big fan of like, let the market decide. Sure. Like, I think that if Net Netflix got a lot of feedback that they need to add a warning, I think that they should have just done that. I mean, but I also feel like 
whoever wanted to pay for it at Netflix, I mean, comedy is subjective, and they bought that special. Yeah. And they put it out, and I feel like, you know, because the question with gatekeeping is, like, especially when you don't have people, I mean, the obvious answer is to get more people of those lived experiences yeah. in, position, in those positions that are making decisions, but... Even then, not everybody's going to agree. I know that there are trans people who liked the special and had no problem with it. Mm -hmm. So, there's so much you could say, and, like, there's, there's so much that goes into, like, these big content production and who we give a voice to and how we decide that. Mm. But I feel like there's nothing I can... Do you know what I mean? Like, there's nothing we can do about that as individuals yeah. except say, like, I didn't enjoy that content and I'm not going to continue to consume it and I'm going to give people my honest feedback about it. Sure. Like, there's truly, there's nothing like, I don't think Netflix executives are going to listen to this and be like, oh, this is what we're doing. So like, I just don't like to put that much like thought or time or energy into mm -hmm. stuff that I feel like isn't, mm -hmm. the, that's just a thought exercise. Right. Just and like so, you know, thinking. and like, I think the ask about like, what do we do about Netflix and what do we do about Dave Chappelle is lofty, right? But just maybe, maybe like... Well, so on a, from a, micro, a, yeah, micro, on a level, micro level, I think that those... Like, how do we prevent, ten years from now, another version of a special coming on a streaming service or a big popular platform when there's clearly, right, like, decades and decades and decades of educational information out there that would ideally give some context clues to say, hey, maybe don't make jokes about trans people that are inherently violent. Yeah. Well, so, I mean, if it's something that you really care about... If you really claim to love comedy and you care about specials like this being published, I want more people who care about that to go support live comedy. Sure. Because if you pay money to go see a show and a comedian says something like that and you complain, like, the thing about comedy is that, like, like you don't start with that power. Like, Dave Chappelle didn't start with that power. Sure. Like, so, if I'm, if I'm booking a room... And somebody says something, and I get feedback from a paying customer that I was like, this was really offensive. I'm not going to book him again. You know what I mean? Mm. That starts the weeding out process. Once you've hit Dave Chappelle's level, there's nothing that we can do. Sure. There's nothing that, as comedy mm -hmm. consumers, that we can really do because the special's already out there. So if you really care, and if you're somebody who loves comedy, and you want to consume comedy, and you would like to alter the direction that comedy is going, like I feel like getting involved, like consuming live comedy, investing in that... Mm. And, and, and con like in smaller people, mm -hmm. local comedy or, or young or new creators is, is the place to start. Mm -hmm. Because I feel like with a lot of that too, I mean, we talked about at the beginning, some of that is just inexperience. And so you, I, I think if you go and you can complain about somebody and they have a set that's just punching down and it's clearly like what they think is funny, weed those people out. But I also feel like some young comic who's testing, like, the edgy waters, if they go and that joke bombs, like, they're not going to, you know, do that again. That's sure. a lesson they're going to learn. Sure. Especially if it's something that they're unfamiliar about. They may be felt like it was okay to joke about, and if mm -hmm. they just, if that joke bombs, that's a lesson there. Yeah. So, if you want to have that influence, you have to put in the effort. Do you know mm -hmm. what I mean? Mm -hmm. And, like, I'm not saying anybody's obligated to, like, if you, like, you can't complain unless you've been to a million live comedy shows, but if you really, if that's something that you want to do, I just don't think at that level it's, it's anything we have any control over. Mm -hmm. But at the smaller level, the people who will be that in ten years, mm -hmm. those are the people who are out now, and, and your laughter, like, whether or not you choose to laugh at it, that a joke that a comic says right now, or, or like something on Twitter, or share whatever, mm -hmm. like, that impacts 
what's happening later. Like, and and the cool thing about social media and and more comics coming through online mm -hmm. is that we, I think, it's a lower effort way. Yeah. For for us to weed out and show the mm -hmm. people who are making those big big decisions what content we support. Mm -hmm. So like, I've gotten a ton of opportunities through TikTok. Right. Which is I was gonna say social media for you throughout the pandemic has been named was a huge tool in place of the fact that like gig culture and speaking got a major hit during the pandemic. Right. So, you know, certainly please talk about that a bit, but I'm curious specifically, right, like how does, you know, that feedback and engagement from audience feel and look different through a social media platform versus being in an in person show? It's less instantaneous. Sure. So like if I get like laughter or applause at a joke in person, then I know that's good. Whereas like, and it's also less one to one. It's less direct. So like, when if I post something and it does shitty on TikTok, mm -hmm. like did I post it the wrong time of day? Did it get? Did I use like a no no word in the captioning and it got sure. flagged? Like there's mm. more where I'm like, is this something fun? Like there's less of that. I mean, you get that in comedy too. It's like, is this just a tight audience? Do they just not get the reference? But it's it's less one to one through social media. But the cool thing about social media and, and the influence that the audience has on social media and comedy is that, they, like, I can tell you as somebody who has had, I hate to be like, oh, I can't talk about it, but, like, as somebody who has opportunities coming from social media, yeah. I can tell you that the people, the gatekeepers, are looking at social media, that that's a place where they're finding people. So, mm -hmm. like, it's very, and it's quantifiable reaction for yeah. people like that. So, like... For the people at Netflix or wherever that's looking, mm -hmm. if they can see somebody who has good jokes that are mm -hmm. well-written and talk about these marginalized experiences are doing well and connecting with people, and people want more of that content, they can look and say, oh, this has four million views. That's a quantifiable thing. And if they look at somebody's joke that is transphobic or racist or just not funny, and they can see that, mm -hmm. ooh, this has lots of negative comments and people aren't connecting with that, or only, this person only has mm -hmm. a thousand followers and like, you know what I mean? Yeah. It's, it's quantifiable information, which I think is not great, but also great yeah. in many ways. And if, if it's such little effort, but if you like someone or if there's a marginalized creator, like everybody go follow me. But like, if you follow someone, that's a quantifiable number Yeah. that the people who are making those choices can see that there's a desire for that content. For sure. I, so I'm having, like, this, addi this additional thought, too, um, about, like, the power and also maybe, like, the pitfall of social media, right? Is that, like, I've never watched a Dave Chappelle special, personally, um, that I'm aware of, right? But, like, I don't... I didn't know that there was something for me to be pissed off about until, like, social media was saturated with yeah. talk about it, right? Like, there's plenty of the, the, the aftermath stuff, like, Dave Chappelle in some ways is irrelevant to the situation. Netflix is something to definitely talk about because right. some of the outcomes for trans folks who worked at Netflix, like, is a conversation totally. with labor struggle and other things. But the point of this, right, is that, like, until folks pushed out, you know, their raw feels about the the particular segment within this whole special, mm. right? I didn't know that there was really, it wasn't even on my radar, which right. I'm sure is the case for a lot of people. So in some ways, right, I feel like, and there's this really awesome other podcast called Cancel Me Daddy, where they regularly refer to this concept of yeah, like, yeah. um, 
cancel culture grifters, right? In some ways, I feel like yes. that actually amped up folks' attention to the oh, special. Totally. That, like, folks who are already hype about Dave Chappelle or folks who heard of him or folks who like comedy probably would have watched it no matter what. But someone like me who doesn't really watch comedy specials until totally. yours is posted yeah. somewhere... Um, <laughs> um, probably Netflix. wasn't going to press play on that. Anyway, I have laughed a couple times because Netflix has suggested it to me several times, and I was like, now I know I'm not going to watch it because I'm just yeah. going to avoid the the, the the landmine that now I do know is there, which right. that part might be a little bit helpful because I might have been caught off guard if I did decide to watch it. The point is, right, it wouldn't have been on my radar otherwise. And in right. some ways, I think it amped up, you know, this conversation, which is why we're talking about it right now anyway, right. to be like, oh, cancel culture. Oh, are people really going to cancel Dave Chappelle. Dave Chappelle's not going to get canceled no, because Dave fine. Chappelle is a prime person in his craft and what he does. So in some ways, social media, I think, also um, does, a, does a bit of distracting to say, let's point out the problematic segments of what you know, mainstream high profile comedians are doing in ways that I don't know if that compl you know, complicates the work that you're doing. The other thing I was going to say is that social media as a visual medium I'm curious if you if you think this, right? Like, thinking about the content you have on TikTok, you can't bring Squid to an open mic. You're able to, like... <laughs> yeah. You're able to convey a whole different storyline that do you feel like some of that content would have even made it into your your comedic vernacular, if you will, if you weren't, like, at home during a pandemic... No. ...doing what you want, you know, doing yeah. the videos you're doing. Well, I only started doing TikTok because I was in a really bad place. And part of it was just, I love my job and I get, like, really emotional. Like, yeah, I get really emotional talking about it and being back here because I fucking love my job. Yeah. Like, it's something I'm really good at and I love to do. And, I, like, within the span of a week, it was all gone. Yeah. Like, I had a year's worth of stuff lined up. I was going to do all these big shows, I was going to be working with all these amazing people, and everything I built was gone in like a week, and then it got kind of better, and then it all went away again, and performing is what I love to do. It's like such a narcissistic thing to be like, my passion is like getting attention on stage, like, but <laughs> I love performing, and I love the connection and the communication that was gone. I was just in a really bad place, and so... Yeah. My friend Lisa had gotten me into TikTok by sending me all these horse TikToks. <laughs> and I was like, okay, I'm going to make TikToks. And I'm, I'm, my goal was just to, you know, vid video editing is a great skill to have for anybody who's into anything comedy. So I was like, I'm going to make a video a day and post it. And that was why I started doing that. And I could not have possibly fathomed that, like, t TikTok has been life-changing for me, sure. which is a upsetting sentence to say to another adult like it's from one adult to another TikTok, but TikTok has really changed my life and it it let me be funny in a way in a totally different medium that I wouldn't have been able to yeah. I mean the core is still there it's like I think that what is happening is funny do you also think it's funny and communicating it way in a way and and the words I choose and the writing is, is funny but like yeah it's it's opened a ton of doors for me and the cool thing about social media and comedy, too, is obviously you have the negatives of people who are, like... Yeah. Like I said, I like social media, where, like, the cancel culture grifters is a great way to put it, like... But it's, like, with TikTok in, per in particular, it's putting your content in front of people who are not consumers. I feel like I'm reaching people who are not consumers of comedy, mm. and 
who are not necessarily who aren't consumers of social justice yeah education and yeah it's a, kind of veered off the original topic but um it's been great and i and i i have found a lot of really cool comics through and really funny people through tiktok mm-hmm. that i would never have seen in person i think it's providing a lot of opportunity for non-traditional people like i see a lot of comics with disabilities and comedy is really hard for people with any disability because it's so inaccessible yeah like even the fucking stage is inaccessible yeah like and comedy clubs are very difficult for me because it's dark so it's hard to communicate with people now with masks it's impossible and um i'm not at a point where i can demand that a club spend money to hire an interpreter Mm -hmm. because i don't have that name draw so it's it's really been cool to see particularly TikTok like provide opportunities for so many people who are just being passed over by the traditional stand-up world. And so I, I can tell you from experience that the gatekeepers of like what we think of as being like traditionally making it in stand-up comedy are looking and they are finding those people through mm-hmm. that. And I think it's really cool that there is an opportunity for those really funny people who were being overlooked in the past mm-hmm. to to get that attention and to be seen and have a, and at their base mm-hmm. level, I mean, not even just like, you know, be validated by the gatekeepers, but have a way for their art to connect with people mm-hmm. to be able to con- like find their audience. Mm-hmm. It's been great for me. So it started as an experiment. It sounds like, right? Like as you know, a millennial who already uses social media, it started um, as like a, I need to learn how to edit videos. <laughs> like that was my big thing. I was yeah. like, I, I don't know anything about video editing. It was really Same. just like practicing me editing videos yeah. and learning how to like cut things and, and like on a beat and stuff like that. <laughs> and I, I read a thing that TikTok has been great and part of why it's so popular is because their in-app video creator is so easy to use mm. that it's drawn a lot of people who are who have become big content creators on TikTok um, who weren't creating on other platforms because it's, it's ease of use. And I was like, that's yeah. 100% me. Mm-hmm. I'm somebody who's done very well and, and has clearly been able to communicate in a visual medium well. Mm-hmm. But it's And now I don't edit in t- TikTok. I use other video editing apps. Mm-hmm. But TikTok gave me enough of those tools that it was not scary mm-hmm. and that I could learn how to do that. And then I would say, okay, I can't do this in app, but I want to do this, so how do I do that and find the other software? But TikTok, part of why TikTok's been so successful is because they have lured in those people who have a knack for that but didn't have the skills or were intimidated by the idea of creating visual media, mm-hmm. um, which I think is really cool. So you said you started off doing, like, a video a day. Yep. And then at what point do you feel like you had a realization, like, oh, like, I'm on to something here, or, like, you were getting certain levels of engagement that felt like that was going to be another tool for you to use for... What was the goal? Like, were you just like, I'm a... No <laughs> like, there was no goal. There was no goal when I started Just off. the fact that you were going to make a video a day. You started yeah, there. Yeah, that was just... Yeah. I was posting videos. Um, and the first video that I had that did, like, well, where I was like, okay, now I'm, like, working towards this. Like, this could be something, was I had a video get, like, a hundred and something thousand views. Okay. Um, it was a video of me riding a horse to a Tinder date's house, <laughs> where everybody was thinking I was, like, some rugged cowboy. And I did a reveal where I was like, nope. Uh, and that did well. And then I, it was with those two videos that I hit 10,000 followers. And I was like, that's me. Okay. Like, yeah. that's the most <laughs> followers I've ever had on any platform. On anything, yeah. And then I was just making videos. And, and TikTok's up and down, so I didn't have anything that did quite that well again. 
I was at a show with a friend of mine, Ben Roy. He brought me out to some little town in Colorado to feature for him. And I was getting ready to leave the hotel the next morning. And I was like, fuck, I haven't put up a video for today. So I put something together really quick, just something, an idea that I had thought was funny, a video I'd been kind of working on. I threw it up and then I was like, I went to go thrift shopping and like have lunch by myself in this little town before driving back home. And when I turned my phone back on like two hours later, it had over two million views. <laughs> and uh then I was like, okay, uh, a video's got almost 19 million views. Oh my gosh. Um, which is just unbelievable. But uh, that was really when I was like, okay, this could be something. Because when you hit 10,000 followers too, you hit, you can get, join the creator fund and be paid for okay. views. Mm -hmm. and it's not very much. It's like, it's like a dollar per 25,000 views, but it's like more than I've ever made for posting other dumb shit on social mm -hmm. media. <laughs> and, but that video was really the point where I'm like, oh, I'm, I, and that was when my following started to, I mean, massively climb. And that was like when I was like, this could be something. And then I started after that video, I started doing a daily live stream. So I do a live stream every morning feeding the horses where we just talk and mm -hmm. hang and it's chill and we joke around and it's fun and funny and, um, I realized I really like doing that too as like another creative outlet just to, to be social in the morning and hang out with mm -hmm. people and be goofy and with the animals and um, yeah it TikTok has hugely changed my life which again is such a like <laughs> I pay taxes like <laughs> I'm paying taxes on my TikTok income <laughs> um, which is like but it's been great for me. I know people whine about social media, but like uh, the connections I've made out of TikTok too have been mm -hmm. unbelievable. It's the, in the morning I do my live stream. We have people from literally all over the world. Sure. We have a regular viewer from Sweden, regular viewers from Japan, from Australia, New Zealand, like uh, like France, everywhere in the world. And mm -hmm. like I've got some people from like Vietnam and Thailand and everybody comes and they're like, oh, it's not morning where I am. And, you know, it's like... It's so cool to be able to connect with all these people and to get little slices of life of, from different people. And mm -hmm. I've made some really, really good friends through TikTok. Um, my moderation team for my live my live streams in the morning. I have a team of uh, like five women who like are there to like moderate the comments and keep it a chill vibe, which is always is. And like, um, but like they've become really good friends. And it's like one of them, somebody I knew from high school, and we were like we were friends, but we hadn't like talked since high school. Sure. And, like, the other the other people were just randos. And, like, they're people now that I've, like, really connected with and care about. And it's all through, like, this silly social media mm -hmm. thing that I did as <laughs> to learn how Something to edit Something to video. pass the time during the pandemic and yeah. to learn how to edit video. Absolutely. Yeah. I'm not, uh, I don't have TikTok. Um, the Are you app. serious? I'm serious, yeah. And here's why. Um, my phone is, like, ancient, and I don't think it can handle having another app on it. But That's I have friends... Early. Who regularly send me TikTok links, and um, I watch what I can through Instagram. But um, I think the photo, photo, video, and photo editing thing during the pandemic became, I think, even more. I feel like there was this initial like lapse because like everybody was doing the same thing. Like, what are you going to photograph again? Your sourdough, yeah. your sourdough starter, yeah. and your your pickling, and your gardening, and your plants. But then like. I think as folks started to get more creative and we're just kind of like, how do we pass the time and how do we do this? I think, I think that folks kind of did take to social media in a way that hadn't been done before. And I think that's really cool. Um, and I also think as we're kind of in this forced post pandemic 
kind of state of mind, right, that I see a lot of posts on, like, Twitter, especially um, from folks doing disability justice work that are like, so um, can you please keep your events, like, accessible? Can you yeah. not revert back to not live streaming things and, you know, doing a lot of these um, remote um, like tech tool things that became commonplace for, yeah you know, the peak of the lockdown. And I think social media is one of those places where, you know, you can be at home if that's a place that you're, you know, yeah. having to be at, right. And still access content in a way that you can't go to a live show under any circumstance, yeah. whether or it's a pandemic or otherwise. Create content. Create it. Yes, I mean, that's absolutely. been the thing. That, that's been the thing that I've been the most excited about. About I like <laughs> almost made a really touchy feely video the other day about because I was watching just some unhinged bullshit on TikTok <laughs> that is so genuinely funny and brings so much joy to me and it's just so unbegoddamnlyably weird. It's like, it, and there just is no other context in which I would have access to this person yeah, and their unique, like, you couldn't put it on TV. Like, <laughs> you, you know what I mean? It's mm -hmm. not something you could do. And it's like interesting, like you said, like I couldn't bring squid to a show, but it's like, there's so many people that I enjoy and I've gotten so much joy out of these videos. It's such a unique medium. Um, I like, I have found so much like joy and privilege in being able to have access to all of these funny people in this very specific context. Yeah. Like it's just, I would never, have been able to enjoy them without mm -hmm. social media. Mm -hmm. People complain about it a lot, but I love social media. And I think that there's plenty of room for toxicity and all of the standard boilerplate talking points about why mm -hmm. social media is bad. But I also, um, it's, it got me through the pandemic. Mm -hmm. It's kept me in touch with people and it's fostered relationships with people that I never would have had otherwise. Mm -hmm. And it's provided professional opportunities to me that I never would have had otherwise. And um, I like it. I defend it. <laughs> <laughs> well, and I, I think, like, to that point, right, from a content creation standpoint, if there was no pandemic, I'm not glorifying the pandemic in this moment. But yeah. I will say that it opened opportunity in this way, for, you know, thinking about your your past few years. Yeah. You know, you were already doing workshops. You were already doing stand-up. And then the pandemic hit and you found this additional tool and you toyed with it and you made it work for yourself in a way that, like, you probably otherwise wouldn't have, you know, played with to then have it be this additional vessel for you to connect with other people and then be connected to people who can open up other pathways of opportunity for you. Yeah. Um, and I also, in some ways, feel like, you know, speaking of, like, Netflix as this kind of quasi-monopolizing, you know, media hub, which I, you know, will forever have my subscription to. I'm not saying I won't, right? But right. just, like, I think it also, in some ways, is changing the game around what we believe to be quality content, right? Like, you don't necessarily have to have this multi-million dollar budget to be able to create quality content. Yeah. Um, or be, you know, be... Uh, in front of an like engage with an audience that's going to be receptive to your work um, and yeah. that might be where we see some of those changes we were kind of talking about is that we might not be able to make grand scale change and totally change the interworkings of Netflix or Hulu or yeah. Paramount uh -huh. or whatever but like we're it seems like there's this opportunity for smaller scale creators to then change or um, introduce a culture that says 
we're gonna actually set the standard for what is funny and now totally. this is yep. the ne- this is the ecosystem of people that yeah. are going to be raised on a different type of comedy. Well, I think I think the thing that is so cool, my favorite thing about social media is that like you have niche creators in mainstream markets, but those you're getting those niche creators without having to without having to appeal to those mainstream gatekeepers. Mm-hmm. Like and then work around it. Like I don't need to be palatable to the cis hat white male boomer team at netflix we don't have to i do this bit that's not funny but i love (laughs) that uh i'm not on stage just it's like you know how you do those bits in like everyday life where i pretend to know the president of netflix and whenever i have a really terrible show idea which i love pitching terror like unwatchable show ideas like um the real accountants of washtenaw county is one like (laughs) i mean if i have a really bad show idea I will um, pretend to email it to who I believe to be the president of Netflix with the Netflix Prez, P-R-E-Z-Z-Z-69 at Hotmail.com. <laughs> so I, like, pretend to be under this delusion that this is, like, it's not a great bit, but it is something that I do. Yeah. Uh, and I think is really funny. So I'm, I'm going to email my apology to Netflix Prez, 69 at Hotmail.com. <laughs> Sorry we've been dunking on you, buddy. Um you're just the example for the day. It's really not that yeah. deep. Yes. We can we can start talking about Adult Swim. I believe the president of Adult Swim to be a man named Adolf Swim, who had to change it for obvious reasons. Stop. <laughs> it's, it's, it's such a stupid bit. <laughs> Pretending to know the president of Netflix or of like networks and being Isn't wrong it? about it. It's just such a dumb unhinged bit, and I think it's so funny, and it's just me who thinks that. <laughs> but <laughs> Anyways, you don't have to appeal to Netflix Press 69 anymore. You can just, like, create content and find your audience without mm-hmm. having to, mm-hmm. like, go through that. And I also think that it's been eye-opening for, like... And I think it's I think that TikTok and, like, Vine and YouTube have, have forced a shift in mainstream content because they see that there is a market. Like, yeah. even if it isn't, like, what you would put on, like, ABC at 9 p.m. on Thursday. You know what I mean? Like... That's the Grey's Anatomy spot. Nothing goes there. But if like even if that's not what you would put in that spot, like that there's a huge market for it. Yeah. It just is something like there's all these markets that were there for this content and like that maybe isn't like mainstream white bread America, but there's more room for representation. People are seeing that representation matters and that this diverse content is desired and yeah. will be consumed mm-hmm. in a way that just mm-hmm. wasn't feasible. Yeah. You know, I think we I think, you know, you and I being a few decades old now, just a few, um, have seen, like, kind of different uh, checkpoints, if you will, of social media, right? Like, Tumblr changed the game at a certain, you know, I'm still peak. on Tumblr. So I mean, so am I. I refuse to delete the app, and actually I have a billboard, or a bulletin board. <laughs> a I have a whole billboard. I have a bulletin board outside my office that's technically designed as, like, a Tumblr... Um, that's really cute. Dashboard that I refuse to take down, even though no one knows what it is anymore. Yeah, and but no, Tumblr... Yeah, but, like, that changed the game, right? Because you had access to different content that, like, wasn't readily available. And we could have a whole different conversation about Tumblr, but... Yes. Right? Like, I think that you have these significant, like, social media platforms that create more and more access, more and more conversation, more and more discussion around, like, what is possible. And I do think that, you know, for all of the pros and cons of social media and the capitalist backings that tend to come with them, right? Like there is, there is value in the fact that like the average person 
can pick up a device and be able to create things. As someone who does not get the um, reactions or the watches on their reels, i.e. me, I am me, that person, um, you know, I do think maybe sometimes it's about managing expectations and, like, yeah. not, you know, I, I watch, you know, I watch plenty of videos about, like, how to, like, craft your brand, and I'm like, there, I think that's one, I think that's one avenue, yeah. right, like, if you're branding and you're marketing, you're doing that stuff, but I think, like, that's not, that's not what I feel like you're doing, right, that's not what I, you know, as, in a, a yeah. Subtly, I feel like it's you know there's there's the subtlety to it because you're consistent, right? Like you're you're yeah. you know responding to an audience, like you said, you know like what you've gotten positive reaction to, and then you maybe incorporate that into the next video you make, or you revisit right. the fact that um, something was re- you know received a really like high view, right? You know response, and you're like, okay, let me like keep on with this or maybe there's a part two or maybe there's yeah. something right like it help may, maybe helps influence like what you do but as far as like I need to brand I need to market I need to like do all of this like primping and polishing type stuff that's not what I'm seeing from like your content and so it feels no. like that's a different avenue that's more about like experimenting and having a good time and like engaging with an audience who wants to connect with you on the same things that you want to offer them. yeah well and I think I mean I don't claim to be like a social media expert I am somebody who's done well at social media, though, yeah. so I will say that, but, like, and I'm making a, like, I'm not getting rich off of social media, but, like, I'm making a decent amount, sure. like, a, a portion of my income is now from social media, okay. so, like, I will say I don't feel like that really polished, like, deliberate curated content is what's selling now, do mm-hmm. you know what I mean? Mm-hmm. Like, I feel mm-hmm. like that was definitely a big social media trend I subscribe to those people I watch those people but I feel like um an advice that I give people now is that like overproduction is gonna kill your videos like if the quality of your video is too good I feel like I'm serious (laughs) like if your if your video looks too good I am less interested when it's somebody's shaky ass camera in their kitchen and they're like you know in a raggedy sweatshirt like screaming I'm like I want to know what this is about Mm -hmm. I feel like Obviously, because I'm making income from it, and because it's become a large part of what I do, there is, like, some deliberateness to it, and there is marketing, and there is strategy to it, and there is branding now. I try not to get hung up on views, because it is so fickle. And, I mean, I think the same thing, managing expectations, is mm-hmm. a really big part of it. Like, any view over none is great. Like, <laughs> you know what yes. I mean? And it's disappointing if you work yeah. really hard on something, and you feel like it doesn't do what it deserves. But yeah. there's so many things, there's so many external factors to it that you can't... Yeah. internalize it and I feel like the content that I engage with and the content that I see others engaging with and my content that does the best is the stuff that is really authentic yeah. and then you can talk about the men there's a great Lindsay Ellis I don't know if you're familiar with her um, does a lot of like vi- video and film analysis on YouTube but she has a video called Manufacturing Authenticity for Fun and Profit mm. which is about YouTubers and the the profiting off of that like um parasocial relationship and and whatever degree of authenticity or of authentic authenticity but um i think that that's kind of a cool part of it Mm -hmm. it's like the other thing i think is cool is that um i think that it has shown i feel like you can see the change in trends of media that the the artifice and the perfection of everything is not something that was, like, a view... Like, that wasn't a demand that was coming from the consumption side. Mm. So, like, I don't... I'm not watching people because they are, like... 
there are some people I watch just because they're super hot. But, like, you know what I mean? Like, I'm yes. not only going to subscribe if you're super hot. And, like, I subscribe to people who, or if your, like, hair is perfect. I'm not like, oh, she has a zit. Like, I'm not going to watch. Like, I watch people because I think they're good and funny. And it's like, I don't think only people who look like Jennifer Lawrence are, like, you know what I mean? It's yeah. like, it doesn't distract from my viewing. It's like, that there's a wide diversity in, in lived experiences and skin tone and body type mm -hmm. than that's that doesn't like it's not impacting whether or not I'm choosing to view and mm -hmm. I, I feel like that's been reflected in mainstream media mm -hmm. like as social media gets more popular and we yeah. see that it's not just you know quote, like Hollywood hot people yeah. who are driving traffic and interest I think John Waters would be proud <laughs> <laughs> are you saying John Waters is a fucking smoke show I don't know I don't know how to respond to that. I feel like that's probably the best question. <laughs> um, so we've been talking for a long time, we recording, have. and we've been talking for a long time today. So I feel like just because you were talking about your um, trash take pitches to the fake president of yeah. Netflix, I feel like I'm going to put you on the spot because we talked about this earlier. I want to see if you can come up with two more examples, right? So yeah. pitch ideas for this queer Midwest podcast. So you already gave me one. Oh, gay tornado. Right? Yes. So gay yeah. tornado. If we know any queer tornado chasers in the yeah. Midwest, like, please contact us. Cause that would be super fucking exciting. I don't know. I'm blank. What is the name of that fast food place? Custer's something? Custer's. It's not Custer's. It's, oh, this isn't good. I'm losing my Midwest. Culver's. Culver's. <laughs> Oh my god, don't air that part. Uh, I don't know. Uh, all that fresh Colorado air. Yeah, it's just, just blocking out all the of the... The altitude changes. I mean, I was, like, we can't blame... I was done before I came back to sea level, but... Uh, <laughs> I'm a dipshit at any altitude. Um, like, I have more ideas for the podcast, Yeah, if you could... If I was... Uh, like Prez, cheese curds and, and, yeah, <laughs> heteronormativity of cheese curds, um, <laughs> ranking individual cheese curds in like, a, in like a Culver's like meal about whether or not they feel homophobic. Like each individual cheese curd. Yeah. Yes. Got it. Like some of them I'm sure are fine, but like others, you know. Like the ones that don't have cheese in them that are just the breading. Those are yeah, homophobic. Yeah. Those are homophobic yeah. for sure. <laughs> um, I feel like you can't give... Any justification. Just, this is a homophobic-ass cheese curd. <laughs> um, and one more thing. Just one. Just Midwestern one and gay. And how far is too far to drive for a drag show? Ooh. Because <laughs> I feel like on the coast, they're like, two hours is a lot. But yeah. then, like, I don't know, we're in Duluth right now. I would straight up go to Nebraska, probably. <laughs> Do you know what I mean? Yes. Like, we would drive... Absolutely. I mean, going to our stupid conference. We're like, it was only 14 hours. <laughs> Perfect. I've How only spent the past drive. nine days on a bus with 10,000 other queers. I've put a lot of miles on my car going to queer things. Either visiting people that I had no business visiting, driving back and forth to a drag show out of That's town. That's a Midwest gay thing. Absolutely. Yeah. Yeah, and then getting trapped there because there was 12 inches of snow and then deciding to ride back anyway because yeah. I had to. I had to go. Yep. That's perfect. That's amazing. Good. Yeah, we'll put those on the on the wish list. Netflix for 69. Our inbox is open for all of your insight, feedback, questions, boycotts, memes, and other forms of written correspondence. You can contact us at lastbite at sgdinstitute.org. 
This podcast is made possible by the labor and commitments of the Midwest Institute for Sexuality and Gender Diversity staff. Particular shout out to Justin, Andy, and Nick for all of your support with editing, promotion, and production. Our amazing and queer as fuck cover art was designed by Adrian McCormick. 